Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show. This is Ravi Gupta. Chris Stewart is out today. So I've taken the opportunity to interview one of the most thoughtful education reporters out there, somebody I've known for many, many years, Matt Barnum, who's the interim national editor at Chalkbeat. He's been a reporter at Chalkbeat and other publications like the 74, where he's really been on the sort of national education beat for quite some time. And you probably remember his name because we talk about his work a lot on this podcast and other Lost Debate shows and branch shows. And so we figured this is a good opportunity to bring Matt on. This won't be the only time we talk to him. We're actually planning to talk to him probably in a couple of weeks as well. And the goal here is to try to go through some of the thorniest questions in education research and different claims that different sides make about what works and what doesn't. And just ask Matt about it because he's the guy who reads the studies, summarizes the studies, and will even venture in the territory of you know, talking about maybe what we should do, not just what has been done. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Well, Matt, let's start with class sizes, because this is uh, an area that I think you just wrote about a few days ago. We did a whole segment about this. I think you and I were, were texting about this and other things over the, the course of the past few months. There's a body of research about class size reductions generally, and then there's this experience in New York City, which you just wrote about. Uh, why don't we just start with class size reductions generally? What do we know about what the evidence says about whether reducing class size actually helps students or not? So I think the short answer is it does help students. The best evidence at least suggests that it helps students. We have a number of studies most of them find some positive results. Some of them find pretty big positive results. Some of them find small positive results and a handful don't find much of anything. But I think the weight of the research is that it does matter. There have been some folks who sort of have argued that it's just not cost effective to do. In my view, to, to, to reduce class size, like it would be better to improve teacher quality. Like you may have heard that that old line, like it's, it's better to have a good teacher than have a smaller class, right? But the problem with that argument is we don't really have a great method to improve teacher quality. We don't know how to do that well. Like we, we tried that, you know, during the Obama administration and the, the evidence that we got back was we, we didn't dramatically improve teacher quality. So the good thing about class size reduction is that that's like a concrete policy that you can do you know, we know how to do it. And so, yeah, it, it does seem to matter, improve test scores. There's some evidence that improves long run outcomes. It may improve student engagement to, to some degree as well. And what do we know? Like what kind of class size reductions? Like, does it matter if it's at the elementary, middle or high school level? And are there certain power laws at work here? Like the claim I've often heard is that class size reductions work but you have to reduce them pretty significantly in order to get the effects. I think I've seen you either explicitly say or tweet that there's not a lot of evidence for that claim. Yeah, I think there is not a lot of evidence for that claim, which doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that we only have a handful of really good studies on class size, I would say. And so we just don't, and, and most of them are in elementary school grades. I don't think the existing studies provide this like sort of like magic number, like they have to get down to this level that every little bit helps, though every little bit helps just a tiny bit. So if you reduce class size by one student, like that might help, but it's going to help a very, very small, small amount. So we, we actually, I think, need more and better evidence about class size reduction, particularly at the middle and high school levels. I don't know that there's actually ever been a really high quality study of class size reduction at the high school level. Um, most of the studies we have are at the elementary school level. So you hear a lot of claims about what we know, 
and I'm generally of the mindset that we, we can't have a lot of confidence in much of anything about the, this research, just that it does seem to matter at least some degree. And we don't know how much it matters. We don't know how to, to make it best matter. So we're, we're sort of flying blind to some extent. Yeah. I also think like it depends on the teacher, right? Like, and I know we're talking about at the extreme macro level, but there's some teachers who are really excellent at distilling a concept down for students, giving like a really clear explanation and commanding a room. That's not always the same teacher who's really good at the sort of one-on-one, one-on-three, one-on-four instruction. And there are also differences in classroom management, you know, effectiveness. And so, you know, I'd be, if I were designing these studies, I'd almost start controlling for, I haven't seen, maybe you've seen data like this to say, well, when you reduce class sizes, how do the, the previously most effective teachers fare? versus the previously least effective teachers. Now, do the least effective teachers get demonstrably better or do they just stay less effective? And do the do the people who are already effective get way more effective? You know what I'm saying? Like maybe you're familiar, but I would love to see it broken out like that. Yeah, we don't have good evidence of that, but I thought the same thing because like, do we think class size matters most for the most effective veteran teachers or the novice struggling teachers? And you could tell a story either way, right? You could imagine that the newer teachers really just need an opportunity to get their sea legs to learn classroom management. So for them, having a small class would really help doing that. But you could also tell a story where the most effective teachers, like they know how to target instruction. They can really take advantage of that smaller class size. I don't think there have been any good studies that that looked at that. Yeah, my sense is... Focusing on the most effective teachers, my sense is the most effective teacher is going to get like 5x, I'm just making it up, but like yeah. like a dramatically larger improvement than the least effective teacher if you decrease the class size enough because the most effective teachers are really good at maintaining sort of order within the classroom and making their way around the classroom and differentiating instruction, et cetera. And so if they have fewer kids to get to, they can get a lot more done. And then the the least effective teacher, it depends on what makes you less effective, right? If, if what makes you less effective is your inability to maintain order in the classroom, maybe that'll make you, you know, more likely to maintain order. Although I've seen some of the worst classrooms I've ever seen in terms of chaos and, you know, students kind of running the show have been pretty small. Like, you know, it's like, it could be bad either way, but also if somebody is not great at explaining a concept, they're not going to get any better at explaining that concept with a smaller group of kids. So, you know, it's, it's tricky. You know, my sense is like, obviously any teacher is going to benefit if you go from 30 to five, but the question is, is this the best use of that money relative to alternatives? And I think that's a good segue to what you've been reporting on in New York City with some of your colleagues, where you wrote this article a couple of days ago that raises some questions about New York, which perhaps will be the biggest experiment we've ever had in class size reductions. You looked at basically like the initial momentum and where this thing could go. And I think you found some some issues maybe just start with saying like what is the new york city reduction like how go, what are we going to go from from what to what and at what grade levels you know the the, the precise numbers I, w- I would have to to pull up um and, and I'm, I'm happy to do that let me do it for you so under the previous rules classes were capped at 30 to 34 students depending on the grade 25 students uh, in kindergarten under the new law Classes may not exceed 20 students in kindergarten through third grade, 23 students for grades four to eight, 
25 students in high school. So somewhere between 30 to 34 students in non-kindergarten grades to somewhere from 20 to 25 students. So that's a fairly big reduction. Yeah. So, and now keep in mind, those are caps, right? So there are always going to be some who are already below the cap. So most classes are probably not going to go from the top of the old cap to the top of the bottom cap, but it is a pretty significant reduction. I think we can reasonably expect that that's going to translate into a meaningful reduction in, in class sizes. And so on the one hand, when we're thinking about the research, like we might say, well, you know, if we want to get something for reducing class size, we have to do a meaningful amount of reduction in class size, right? So that is a, that's a positive aspect potentially of the law. On the other hand, it's also very expensive to, if you're going to do big class size reductions, it's, it's much more expensive. Um, it also means hiring a lot more teachers. What we focused on, my, my colleague Alex Zimmerman and I focused on with um, one of our data reporters was looking at which schools this was most likely to affect. And we showed that the more advantaged school, the schools, the relatively better off schools in New York City tend to already have higher class sizes. So the cap is going to affect them more, and they're going to likely see bigger reductions in class size than the least advantaged, the highest poverty schools in the city. And so that raises, you know, a basic equity concern that the city may have to drive more resources to the relatively advantaged schools. Now, some of these schools aren't super advantaged, but to the relatively advantaged schools, they're going to get more resources than the most needy schools in New York City, which also tend to have the lowest test scores right now. Yeah. And and you're talking about cost here. So New York City, correct me if I'm wrong, is has tagged this at somewhere between $1.3 billion to $1.9 billion per year. This is from projections from the Department of Education and the city's independent budget office. And that's, I think that's not including money spent on facilities that would have to be created in order to deal with this. So this is a huge price tag. I was doing some, and, and Adams does not seem happy about this mandate at all, which is a whole separate question around the state versus the city. The money doesn't seem to be accounted for yet. I was doing some math here because you wrote an article, I think earlier this year about like, here are like eight or nine things I would do to help the teaching profession. I think you wrote it a few days after you wrote an article about how we have a crisis in the teaching profession right now, something we've definitely talked about a lot. And one of the things you talked about as an intervention, I think it might've been the first thing you mentioned, was paying teachers more in their earlier and mid-career as opposed to sort of backloading their payments and also putting a lot into sort of benefits and retirement as opposed to attracting people in the work in their early years. And so for spending somewhere between 1.3 billion to 1.9 billion on class size reduction, I think it's important to say, like, well, what else could we spend this money on? One thing could be paying teachers more. And I did the math, and I know it's not this simple because there are other things, but like, we're talking at least $10,000 more per teacher existing in New York City, according to my math. There's 75,000 teachers and probably somewhere around 15,000 plus once you take into account how expensive it is to build facilities, et cetera, if not more. And I know that teachers and teachers unions, like you spoke to the teachers unions, they seem quite defensive of this policy. They're really for this. But I wonder if the rank of file teacher, if you were to ask them, all right, you're going to go from, and, and we're talking about caps, right? So I don't know what the average is, but let's say your class is going to reduce by five students. And I don't know if that's like the right number, but you could you have five fewer students or you can have $15,000 or $10,000 more per year. 
I don't know, man. I, I would actually want to put this to teachers. You know, not that they're the only stakeholders, but I wonder what they would choose. Right. They, I think they would have a tough choice. I, it is true that teachers really value smaller class sizes. If you ask teachers, and I mean, this is, I've done this anecdotally and I've looked at surveys. If you ask teachers, do you think class size matters? They say almost to a person, yes. So there is some like more of a debate in the wonk community about how much class size matters versus the teacher community, which is pretty united in saying class size matters, which I, I do think the research mostly supports. So teachers do value this. It is an important working condition for teachers. And so there may be some teachers who, you know, are attracted or pushed out of the profession because they feel overwhelmed with grading papers, because it's not just the moment you're, you're in the class, but also the, the, the number of kids that whose papers you're grading. But you're right about the trade-off. And I don't, from a research perspective, I don't think there's a clear answer. Like if we want to say like, what is the best way to use money? Should we pump it into raising teacher pay or spending more reducing class sizes or somewhere in the middle? I don't think there's a definitive research answer on that. And so people are just going to have to make their, their best ju judgments. Yeah. Well, and you do this for a living and I know it's like particularly hard to parse through all the data. And one thing I think I tend to find something I talk to Chris about a lot is the way people react to studies. Uh, you probably live this every day. The way people react to studies, it, it depends a lot on what they want to see. So if I read a study about charter school effectiveness, I'm going to be like, all right, like credo. All right, we got it. This is like, they're effective. Right. Uh, and if I read something, you know, that like challenges my worldview, and this is true of polling for sure. I'm going to bring a much more skeptical eye to it. So it makes it really hard because most people are like this. They're kind of like, you know, there's, there's definitely you know, there's, there are biases all over the education, like any other policy area from your best judgment. If you're picking, you wrote this piece about like improving the teaching profession, but we could broaden it out. It could be improving the teaching profession and attracting more teachers to the classroom, but also it could be just moving the dial on student achievement. My understanding is some of the data out there about what is the most effective right now, as we know it, are things like high-powered tutoring. And what else? Like, give it to me and tell me if I'm wrong about that. Like, well, if you're making a list, like where the data is strongest from what you've seen to help students? Great question. That's like the question, right? So what works? You're, you're asking me what works in education. That's a, that's a million dollar question. Yeah. Well, like, or I guess another way to frame it is if you had this billion dollars a year to $1.9 billion and... Holding for a second class sizes, and then we could compare whatever you say to class sizes. So saying like class size, like what are things that you put with class size, if not ahead of class size in terms of an investment for kids? It's a tough question that I'm a little hesitant to answer as a, as a very careful research reporter who tries to, you know, not take big sides and be fair minded. I think intensive tutoring is a pretty well-documented, well-agreed-upon strategy. Now, what's interesting about intensive tutoring is it's a form of dramatically reducing class size. Potentially. Well, it is. I mean, it's two students. That's what tutoring is, is an instructor and a very small number of students. Well, yeah, we, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast because I think this is the thing that's interesting to me about the debate about class sizes. I think it's a Western way of thinking about class size in some ways because there are certain Eastern countries I think are better about grouping kids strategically and moving them around throughout the day. But I want to see more, and I've, some people have written about this recently, where you can strategically 
group kids into bigger and smaller groups throughout the day and how it shakes out at the end of the day about like student to teacher ratio and class size, it may run a file of different laws, but it may be that the kid who's in a classroom of 25 kids all day is worse off than a kid who's in a class of 35 kids for most of the day, but for critical points of the day is in a one to two situation or a one to five situation. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I would love these laws to like, look, it's, it's, it's like, it still doesn't preclude from investing in more educators, whether they're tutors or not, but like, I would want the law to allow for that because like that flexibility I think can really help because like listening to direct instruction and to me, it doesn't matter if it's 20 kids or 35 kids, if the teacher knows what they're doing, but in those smaller differentiated groups, it really does matter whether it's 10 kids or two kids. Cause that makes a huge difference if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it's totally plausible that more creative uses of staff and like having like much bigger staffing ratios or instructional ratios in some cases and much smaller in other cases, which schools already do to some degree, but allowing that flexibility might be more effective. From a research perspective, I don't think we actually know. Like I wouldn't, if someone said to me, would you rather have a a class of 20 or they're all day versus a kid in a class of 30, but then there's like pull out where they get an hour of one-on-one instruction, right? I honestly don't know. And, you know, also that may be about the considerations may be about equity. Like, well, we really want the kids who are struggling the most to get that one-on-one instruction. So from a research perspective, that that's hard to answer. Yeah. And I think like this gets to this conversations around class size also, I think are related to conversations around funding, which you've written about as well. Like what's the link between more funding and student outcomes. And I think and, and this was like a topic of the conversation I had with Corey DeAngelis where some of your writing came up. And I think what's what I think makes these conversations hard, whether it's about class size or about funding, is there is obviously a huge ideological push to decrease funding overall in education that is also linked to a political movement that wants to basically attack the very institution of public education. So I think like, I think often what winds up happening here is the stakes of the research and the question are higher than just a nuanced conversation about how we would allocate money here or there. There's like a lot of people who are like grasping at this data saying, I really want to paint a picture that says public education itself is not worth investing in, if you know what I'm saying. I don't know if that's a pressure you feel. I know that you're you're a journalist, you're objective, but I don't know if you feel that 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 tension in your work. I try to be objective, but you know, it, it's always a, an aspiration for, for us as journalists. Yeah. I mean, the research and claims about effectiveness of various policies are always an inherently political, right? And that's okay. People have political ideas and political agendas and that are not just related to education, but are broader. And, you know, how much we fund education is also related to how much taxes we pay and people have strong opinions about that. And all that is well and good and fine for, for the political discourse. What I try to do is, you know, look at the educational research and come to a reasonable conclusion based on that research. On the funding front, you know, there have been a number of studies that have come out recently, a few dozen studies, and most of them do show that there's at least some link between funding and student outcomes. Yeah. And like, how do you read that data? Because it's such a general question, right? Like, is more funding better for student outcomes 
like there's the regional difference. Like I would imagine like more funding in Idaho is a different conversation than more funding in New York city. Right. Or, you know, more funding in Mississippi, uh, but also like more funding for what, right? Like if, if that money is going towards earlier retirements or better retirement packages, that's great. But that's, I would have a you know, much different read on that than increasing teacher pay earlier in their career, decreasing class sizes you talk about, or, you know, tutoring. Like these are, these are very different interventions with different bodies of research behind them, you know? And I don't know if there's any of the data has been that specific about how the money's spent. I think the good and bad of the school funding research data is that it's mostly, there are a couple exceptions, but it's mostly agnostic on what the, what the funding is spent on. It's mostly saying like, their money is going in, we don't really know how it's spent, or if we do, we only have these very big categories and we don't know what's really making the difference. But then we look at the end and we see whether there was an improvement in student outcomes, right? And so that's bad in that it's not super helpful. If you talk to the leading researchers on this and you say, I'm a school district official, I got more money, how should I spend it? They'll hem and ha, and they won't really say anything useful because they're, and that's not their fault. They're, they're, there's just not really good data on this, sort of like how I hemmed and hawed about like, okay, what do we really know about reducing class size? I gave you some like very broad outlines. Like it kind of makes it, it probably makes a difference. Um, but I didn't offer the sort of specificity that actual policy makers have to choose based on. So what's good about that research is it indicates that on average, in most cases, what school district officials are spending money on when they get extra money seems to make some difference in terms of test scores and long run outcomes. And that is, you know, encouraging. It doesn't mean that they're spending it perfectly. I mean, it's very unlikely that they're spending it perfectly, almost impossible. It doesn't mean that there couldn't be better, different uses of that money that could produce even better results. Yeah, I do think this, I, one thing that worries me from the practitioner perspective then is, well, how do we motivate people, right? Because you, you've written about pandemic learning loss recently, you, you've written about the crisis of the teaching profession, and there are many different causes, but... One thing that I definitely experienced in the work is a relativism about it, which is like you go work your heart out and then people are like, well, like we don't know what works, right? And it's like, you know, nobody wants to go into a profession or invest in the profession or try bold things if the end result is, well, hey, like on the one hand this, on the other hand that, like I do worry that like the whole sort of body of of evidence in education, plus the conversation around it is like, yeah, you know, we don't really know. Try whatever, <laughs> you know? I think obviously I cover education research and I'm like into education research. Like I like it. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I think it can help us understand the world and I think it can help us improve schools for kids ultimately. And that's why I write about it and, and think it's important. And also the more I've been covering this stuff, the more I have come to understand and appreciate its limitations and to realize, look, these very complex research studies by people at like top universities with PhDs who are doing fancy math, they can tell us something really meaningful about the world, but there's a lot that they still don't understand and that we're, they're just going to keep chugging along to try to understand it better. But we also have to just use judgment, understanding that judgment is flawed, but like professional judgment, edge of pedagogical judgment. Like if you're the chancellor of the New York City schools or a New York state policymaker, I don't think anyone's going to be able to tell you here's the right class size policy. 
you have to triangulate with different sources of evidence from research, from talking to teachers, from talking to parents, from political constraints to, to make judgments that are going to be imperfect. And I think once you come to understand that this research can only get us so far, that's a little bit freeing. Now, I don't want someone to hear that and be like, oh, you know, well, now I can ignore the research. Well, I think the research is, you know, the academic research is a very powerful and important source of evidence that we should pay close attention to as well. Yeah. And, you know, you, you definitely, you know, you write these pieces that kind of summarize the research, but you have written pieces where you basically say, well, and I might be misinterpreting them, but like, this is kind of what I would consider. And, you know, the, the one that really stood out to me is where you talked about what you do, you know, to help the teaching profession and, and what you wrote was, you know, number one, you'd raise teacher pay early and mid-career. Two, pay teachers more in shortage areas. Three, turn first-year classrooms into an apprenticeship. Four, uh, have more support for student discipline. Five, reconsider LIFO. There are a couple other things in there. Uh, LIFO meaning like uh, last in, first out. So, I mean, that does seem to be like a, those are particularly pointed changes to the policy, to, to policies. What, you know, was that a, an outlier for you in terms of like getting into the realm of like solutions and advocating for solutions? Or was that just really because you were on the heels of writing about like the particular teacher's crisis and you're like, I, I, you know, in the spirit of what we just talked about, I want to actually give people guidance on what they could do about this. Actually, yes, to both those questions. Like I tried not to be too prescriptive, but after in that, you know, when I was working on that piece, it was like, you know, here's all these data points that show some really concerning things about the teaching profession. More teachers are leaving the classroom. Fewer people want to become teachers. Teacher morale is down. And so just to like leave it, put all these like doom and gloom things out there and not say anything about potential solutions. What I tried to do with the solutions piece was not just say like, here's what Matt Barnum thinks, but like say, here is a reasonable research informed here are reasonable research informed ideas that are also informed by interviews with teachers and practitioners to sort of put those out there not saying like let's definitely do those or those are definitely the right things but here are reasonable ideas here is the evidence base you can you know for each one you can follow the follow links to some research evidence and also each one of those you know that said each one of those it wasn't like oh this is like a complete slam dunk if we do this like things are 100% going to get better. It's like, this is a reasonable evidence-informed policy. And, and so I, I hope people took it like that. My, and one of my questions is like, why don't we have some of these things? Like some of these seem like fairly like common sense, right? Like you'd want to pay teachers more early to incentivize them in. You'd want to attract teachers to the, you know, subjects and geographic areas where they are most needed, which is an issue you also pointed out in the piece about New York City class size reductions is we don't have a sensible policy to direct and incentivize teachers to the neediest schools. So one of the potential unintended consequences of a class size reduction is that you create all these openings at fancier schools. Those become attractive to veteran teachers who may have been teaching in the lower income schools. They leave the lower income schools to go to the, the sort of higher income schools, and that actually exacerbates an existing problem. You know, LIFO, for example, is another good example. The sort of Steve Brill answer to that would be, well, the teachers unions are standing in the way of a lot of these things. Like, would he be wrong in pointing that out? So one thing that we can say is the teachers unions probably aren't standing in the way of raising teacher pay, which was one of the first, you know, I think was the first recommendation. Now, 
you know, I was focused on the early and mid-career because that's when you tend to lose teachers is early mid-career. You don't see a lot of veteran teachers after you've been teaching for 15 to 20 years leaving the classroom. And if you look at states that don't have particularly strong teachers unions, they don't have super high early or mid-career teacher pay. They also often don't pay extra for shortage areas. I'm, I'm not sure their LIFO policies, they, they may be more likely to, less likely to have last in first out policies. So you'd really have to go sort of policy by policy to, to talk about what the political barriers are and and the other, you know, some of them I think might just be like inertia barriers. Like one thing that was that I included that was a smaller thing that I think does make a can make a big difference was like reducing unnecessary barriers to teacher certification. Like oftentimes it's just a pain to get and stay certified. And if you talk to teachers, they'll, they'll say that. I don't think that's a particularly political thing, but maybe we've created these sort of structures that are just just hard to change. So at, anyway, the, the question about like why aren't these policies changed is, is a good one. And you'd have to go policy by policy and the answer might vary. Yeah. I'd be interested in whether you've looked at to whether even certification itself is in any way sensible and effective. That's a hard question is the short answer. So let's put a pin in that for a second. Yes. I, I have a working theory as it relates to what we just talked about with LIFO, pay, teacher pay, for example. And actually, let's focus on teacher pay for a second. The, the sort of argument I hear about teacher pay early in careers, and some people have written about, I think Class Warfare Brill's book actually goes into this in a bit in the New York context, will argue that teachers unions, when faced with the choice of investing in the early career people who are not members yet, and the members who are the most active, which are the older members, they tend to skew towards the older members. I haven't seen an exhaustive, and that's why the policies tend to benefit those members. Now, Assuming for a second that there's something to that, which it makes some sense, my theory on teacher pay and, and the, out, the outlook that you just talked about is, and it's for sure true, because I, I ran schools in Tennessee and Mississippi that have pretty low teacher pay, although Mississippi's getting better. The red states have one reason why teacher pay is low, which is they tend to underfund public education generally. And so like that, there's going to be pay issues no matter what. The blue states invest a lot more in public education, New York City being another example. But because of the strengths of the unions, that investment isn't hitting the earlier teachers in a distribution that would at least be sensible to me. And the combination is that in no state, or not no, but in in too few states, because of the unique politics of both red and blue, we're not investing enough early in the profession. That's that's like my working theory. I haven't I haven't done like an exhaustive look at that, but that's just like my kind of working hypothesis about what what what's at work there with some of that data that we're talking about. It strikes me as plausible. And I think it is true. The last numbers that I saw is that there is no state where teacher pay is at the same level as other college educated workers. Teacher salary, I should say. Teacher take-home salary is at the same level as other college educated workers. Now, I think it is more competitive relative to other college-educated workers in the bluer states that you're talking about. So I, I, New York has relatively good teacher pay. Now, we'd have to look at the whole distribution of that. I suspect that even at least mid-career teacher pay in New York is better than teacher pay in some other places. So... Yeah, I, we, you'd have to look how all these various concerns about overall funding, the shape of the pie, the incentives to to spend more on non-teaching staff or 
more teachers as opposed to raising teacher pay, just the the backloading versus frontloading, you know, you'd have to look at all those things. But it's an interesting point for sure. Well, okay. I mean, that could be a thing that we, we talk about the next time that we talk. Let's talk about the pandemic because I think you've written a lot and I actually think like you have, I think you have evolved in the, in the way you talk about these issues, I think in line with some new data that's come out. Not that you had like a particularly strident position that I could tell about whether there was a teacher shortage or not, or learning loss, but you can kind of following the data. You wrote a piece just recently about this question of learning loss. And I think it's safe to say there definitely has been learning loss because of the pen, or at least in, in line with the pandemic. But there's this weird rebound-ish that happened in 2021, 2022 that has now like reversed course a little bit. It's not like we made up the ground that we lost during the pandemic, but it seems like we had a decent upswing that wasn't commensurate with the loss, but now we're we're back to some pretty alarming levels. Is that right? And this is based on NWEA data? That's basically right. So, you know, I think we could have we predict we could have predicted, and I wrote a piece to this effect in March 2020 that we were going to see learning loss. You know, everyone like of course, like when you shut down or turn schools offline <laughs> or online, kids learn less because school actually teaches kids. It turns out, so yeah, we've seen really punishing deep learning loss, and I think the peak of it was probably the fall of 2021. Though I actually am not confident of that. Certainly, we, we saw it pretty clearly by the fall of 2021. Like, yes, there was apps, and we started seeing it earlier. Absolutely, there's learning loss. And so, if, and if I'm getting my timing right, the fall of 2021 was the time where virtually all schools were back in person. Am, am I getting that timing right? Yes, that sounds about right. Fall 2021, 21, 22 school year, everyone was back in person. So that's when we, we were starting to, we, we would hope to start seeing some real learning loss recovery efforts, right? So the first year that we had from NWEA, which is a testing company that has been tracking students who volunteer, whose schools give them the test, that first year, 21, 22, we did start to see some evidence of recovery. And other data points, including state test scores, showed the same thing. Now, in the most recent, the most recent round of data that was through the spring of 2023 through NWEA, we didn't really see any more recovery. And if anything, we saw a tiny bit of backsliding, which is not obviously not good news. It's very clear that students are still behind where they otherwise would have been if not for the pandemic and its associated school disruptions. The only asterisk I put on this is at this point, we really only have good data from NWEA. And that's a set of schools that opt to take this test. And I am trying to figure out, is that representative of other data points, including state test data? So right now, I think the jury is still out. We have this one very important data point that's saying like, we haven't seen much good. And we've seen even like a little bit of backsliding. I just want to be careful before saying that is definitely the state of play. And so we've got that set of data, which is not great. And then we have this teacher turnover and vacancy data. It seemed to me, as I was, I was watching this unfold, and it seems like there was initial data that the teaching profession was in the state of crisis in the middle of the pandemic, and that may have predated the pandemic. And then there was this debate I, I was seeing a lot of prominent education commentators saying this is alarmism. 
There isn't a teacher shortage, at least nationally. There's certain localized phenomenon like Mississippi, for example, has a very bad issue. But like, it's not a unique national phenomenon. And now I'm starting to see people largely say that they're actually, this is as bad as it's been in a long time. What What is the story nationally? Like, is it is it as bad as it's been? Uh, and is there any sense of, did it begin before the pandemic, during the pandemic, after the pandemic, or do we not know? So this is a really hard question, both for like boring, like data reasons that like we don't really have the data that we might want. And because the data that we do have is often coming on a significant lag. And then also just like, we're talking about like multiple different measures of the teaching profession, like teacher morale, the number of people who want to become teachers, the number of teachers who are leaving, and they may be correlated, but they're not always telling us the same thing. What I have been tracking most closely is teacher turnover, the number of teachers who leave the classroom. And what we saw at at first after the pandemic had people were like, this is going to be really bad. Teachers are being forced to go online. Like now teachers are being criticized. We're going to see this big spike in teacher turnover. And so I wanted to see whether that's true. whether that was true. In the summer of 2020, we did not see that. We actually saw teacher turnover go down. And I say the summer because teachers usually leave over the summer, right? So we saw teacher turnover go down in summer of 2020. And that was probably because of the economy, right? The economy was like at a standstill. So if you're not going to leave a stable job or you're less likely to leave a stable job at a time where no one is hiring, right? Okay, so teacher turnover dipped. Summer of 2021, it went back up and was even a little higher than normal, okay? At that point, I was still like, okay, that's kind of what you would expect, right? The two-year average of 2020 and 2021 were about the same as the two years before the pandemic. So I was still kind of on the team like, this is not a huge concern, at least based on the data we have. But then what was weird and what genuinely surprised me is in summer 2022, it kept going up in most states where I was able to get data. So the summer of 2022 was the highest teacher turnover on record in a number of different states, including Texas, which is, you know, employs a huge number of teachers. So I I forget the, the precise numbers, but across the country... Not every single state, and some states we don't have data, like California, you can't get any data on a lot of different things in education. But across a number of states, we saw the highest level of teacher turnover in the summer of 2022. At that point, along with a number of different data points, teacher morale seems to be going down since the pandemic. Fewer people want to become teachers. That was before the pandemic, for over a decade before the pandemic. Fewer people want to become teachers. Fewer high school students say they're interested in the teaching profession. So all those data points to me are like, this does seem to be a crisis or at least very concerning. How exactly this is going to shake out going forward, I'm not sure. I think it's plausible that things will get better for a number of reasons and that maybe this big increase in turnover was a one-time, you know, blip, but we'll see. Yeah. And it's fascinating that those two data points that we just talked about kind of line up. Like we talk about the dip in student performance it seemed to be in line with the year that happened after people were either reporting lower morale or leaving the profession. Obviously, like we don't know enough to say whether those two things are linked. I think they probably were, though. We we do know that teacher turnover is not good for kids, and so I think it that is at least something that was putting negative pressure on student learning. More teachers leaving. I think we can be. That's a very reasonable hypothesis. And you talked about. Well, there are, there are a number of reasons why it could get better. Like, 
help us cheer, cheer us up a little bit here. What, what could make it better? Cause I could think of a lot of reasons why it could get worse. No, you're right. The reasons why it could get better is that the world is complicated and we don't understand the world. <laughs> it just is unpredictable. I had thought that like before last year, that teacher turnover was just something that didn't change that much. And I mean, it's still like ranging in like, so like a, I think Texas went from like 10% to 13% teachers leaving. So that's a three percentage point or 30% increase in how much you, whether you think that's massive or modest depends on your point of view. But it, there's this, I had thought that there was just this very tiny narrow band of teachers, the number of teachers who were open to leaving. And so it might be, it might be that like once the people who really wanted to get out got out, more teachers aren't going to go. I think that's maybe the, the most optimistic case of why it's not going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, one other thing that could help is if paradoxically, when the economy gets worse, teaching gets more attractive because, you know, you don't have this low unemployment and obviously nobody wants to root for that. You know, like I came of age starting a school in the middle of the financial crisis, like 2010, like still the recovery from the financial crisis. It was among the best periods of time to recruit teachers. It also was like that sort of height of the sort of education reform glow. So it was easier to recruit teachers, particularly for charters. But I felt like the market itself was a lot different than you hear from people now, or they're just really hard to find people generally or, or good people specifically. You're exactly, I think you're exactly right to think about the teacher labor market as interacting with this broader labor market for college professionals. And it depends is like how the job market in education looks compared to the job market elsewhere. So after the Great Recession, like right when the Great Recession hit, what, in, in 2008, schools were not facing deep budget cuts at that particular moment, or maybe it was 2007. So while other places are laying folks off, schools may still be hiring or at least not laying folks off so it looks attractive. But then schools did get hit with budget cuts at a time where the rest of the economy was recovering rapidly. So schools, depending on how the economy plays out, depending on funding for education, the federal relief money, schools are often on sort of a lag. So they may look with the rest of the economy. So they may look good at first and be attractive places to work at first, but then they're, they're often much slower to recover. That's what happened with the Great Recession. And I think that's one of the reasons why fewer people were training to become teachers, why that went down sharply. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's this problem is so deeply entrenched because even, you know, what's interesting is like we, we talk about, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago with a sense of nostalgia almost for the profession, but it wasn't even in a great point place then, the profession itself. And obviously there's a lot written about like how the teaching profession is treated in other countries, et cetera. It seems like there's a prestige issue too, which is linked to the money issue, but it's not, it's not solely a money issue. Is it not solely a money issue? I don't know. What is a, what is a, what is a, what is a prestigious profession that isn't very well paid? I don't know that there are that many. Yeah. I mean, I, I use it to say in your solutions, it wasn't like you were like, all right, one, give teachers more money. Like you included things like turning the first year classroom into an apprenticeship, more support for student discipline, last in, first out, you know, which is not just, it's not money, it's job security. Right. So I think like, yeah, like paying people more money makes a lot of sense. But like in a lot of places, plumbers make a ton of money. Right. You know, especially around here where there's like a really good strong trade union. When I grew up in Staten Island, 
being a plumber is a super attractive job, but there are perfect, like, it's not like people look around and treat plumbers with the prestige that you would, you know, pick another profession that makes the same amount of money. Right. Like there are a good example is acting, right? Like with the actor strike, what's, what's been wild in looking at that data, I wasn't fully familiar with it is actors don't get paid a lot of money. Like, and actually in a lot of, in New York City, the data I look at is actors make less than teachers. But if you're sitting at a, a table with an actor you recognize from Orange is the New Black or anybody, including me, a podcaster, like the most prestigious quote unquote job at that table is, is the actor, right? So I think it's like, it's, it's tricky, right? Like, or like a good example is the medical profession where, you know, Stephen Brill in his subsequent book, The Bitter Pill, talked about how hospital administrators, device, people who sell medical devices and equipment, et cetera, often make more than the average doctor at those hospitals. Now, it, like same test, like you're at a table with people and somebody's like, well, I, I sell, you know, radiology equipment and somebody else is like, I'm a surgeon. You're going to be like, oh, okay, that one person's got in a more prestigious job than the other. And you're still seeing people motivated to be that surgeon when they're in college versus they kind of stumble onto the job selling equipment. So yes, like you want to pay the profession more, but it doesn't solve the underlying, it does, it, in and of itself doesn't solve the problem. It is a important component of solving the problem of prestige of the profession. It's a, it's a really interesting point. I think there are some professions that have these intangible benefits or non-benefits, including acting or even being a writer, like creative professions seem like fun and cool. Right. And so sometimes you may be able to, to get away with underpaying those professions and that retaining some of that prestige, whereas some other professions seem like really hard or daunting or uncool, like selling medical devices doesn't seem like the most cool profession. So maybe you have to pay and you need really talented people to do it. So maybe you have to pay people more to be able to attract people. I do think an interesting thought experiment is like, what would happen to teacher prestige if we doubled teacher pay overnight, if we just decided that's what we're going to do? I think that it would go up a lot. Yeah, I agree. It would go up a lot. And I, but I think like part of the question is like, why don't we? Like in a lot of these places, you've looked at the same data I have, like the, the spending in New York City, for example, on schools has gone up dramatically since I was a kid, but the, the teacher pay, especially in the first half of your career has not gone up commensurate with that spending. And so like, there, there's just a lot of tough questions and it's not because of some, you know, right-wing conspiracy that that hasn't happened. It's, these are blue states and it's not like blue states depriving the schools of money. They're, they're finding more and more ways to spend money. They're just not spending it on the profession and the ways that are driving that, at least that initial pay and the prestige of the profession. Like another good example though, in this prestige thing that I find fascinating is firefighters, right? Like firefighter and a teacher, I don't, I haven't looked at the data recently, but I, I would imagine teachers and firefighters in New York City make about the same amount of money, but it is also the professionals are looked at very differently. That used to also be true of police officers, although I think the prestige of that profession has gone down for obvious reasons, especially in blue states. We'd also really have to think about the gender dynamics. If we're comparing though, you know, firefighters and police predominantly male professions with teachers, a predominantly female profession, like we'd have to think about that and other outside options. And we also might want to think about, you know, health and safety considerations for firefighters and police officers. But I, it is an interesting, I have thought about that too. Like if we're thinking of like uh, public sector workers, firefighters and police officers are 
an obvious comparison point. I actually, I don't know. I would guess that firefighters and police officers in New York City are paid more than teachers, but I'm not sure. It's a, it's a, it's a good and interesting question. Well, I'm going to ask ChatGPT, which is never wrong. I'm going to do ChatGPT, which will be a few years old. Uh, average teacher versus firefighter pay. I actually don't know what the answer to this is going to be. I, the one thing I know about the way the firefighting is viewed in New York City is uh, my roommate in law school became an FDNY, a firefighter. It's about the same, according to ChatGPT. Teachers in, in the city often earn an average salary. This is according to whatever data they were pulling for at the time. 68,000 firefighters, 75,000. So they make a little bit more. The interesting thing about firefighters is, I don't know what the difference is in retirement, but the sort of reputation in New York City, and I grew up in Staten Island where a lot of people became firefighters, is you become a firefighter and you retire at an absurdly young age. I forget what the, the age you can retire as a firefighter is. And uh, I don't know if that's true of teaching. I hope not. But that is that was a perk that was well known in my neighborhood. Teaching I, teachers do retire, can and do retire earlier than other college educated professionals. But I would guess not as early as firefighters. I, I don't know that. I, I, I think going back to your earlier point about, you know, well, why haven't we doubled teacher pay? I, I think that is the right question. Like, even if we there was some like political consensus about doubling teacher pay, it's not clear technically how to do that, how to ensure that that happens. What is true is that other college educated professionals are seeing their pay rise too. And so if we want to, like, we actually have to continue... If we want to double teacher pay in the sense of like continue to make it a competitive profession, not only would we have to double it, we'd have to keep raising it up and up and up, up the ante. I mean, we've seen pay rise for most people with college degrees. So it is not just a, it's a, not a one-time thing. And I think that's what is driving increased spending in, in education over time. Yeah. And I think the, the, the challenge though is like policymakers are really bad at making trade-offs. And I think, you know, coming back to where we started in New York City is like, New York City had a choice, right? They 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 decided they were going to spend an additional upwards of two billion dollars every year on something, and they chose to spend it on class size reductions, and that's why I think like it's often not enough to view these things in isolation, right? Because yeah, at the same time they're renegotiating a teacher's contract, teachers get a little bit more. It's not what the exact, it's not the full amount they wanted, et cetera. But you have to make trade offs. They decided to to lower class sizes with money that they hadn't even allocated yet. And that is obviously going to make it a lot harder to invest in paying teachers more. It's not, it doesn't make it impossible, but you're, they're going to at least have to find that money before they even get to the question of whether to pay teachers more. And so that's where I think this sometimes gets hard is like, we're not having these debates laying the trade-offs on the table. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously, if, if you're spending more to hire more teachers, you know, that costs money. And that's money that can't be used for other things. Now, obviously, you could say, well, we're going to allocate even more money both for that and to raise teacher pay. There are, are finite resources, but you can make choices to, tr to try to raise even more revenue. But these are, these are genuinely tough trade-offs. I don't think it's obvious that reducing class size is wrong, but it's, it's just, it's a trade-off and, and people have to recognize that. Well, Matt, um, this is a good place to stop. Check out Chalkbeat. We, you know, read it every single day here at the branch. And Matt, congratulations on your Battlefield promotion. Looking forward to reading more from you and inviting you back on this podcast to talk about a lot of the questions raised here and more. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation, Robbie.